Hello and welcome to another episode of Below the Fold. And Happy New Year! This is our first episode of the year. This is episode 5 of season 5. And uh, in total, I think this is episode 105. So a lot of fives. A lot of fives today. Uh, Today's guest is uh, Kaylin Sharp. How you doing? How how would you like to be introduced, Kaylin? Well, I, I... my first question actually is, did you leave last season on a cliffhanger of sorts? <laughs> is there, is there some like, you know, some drama that we need to resolve before hmm. we, there's always drama. <laughs> last uh, season we ended on episode 99 and the cliffhanger oh, was nice. stay tuned for episode 100. That's right. And then we were, about as dramatic and then we as were off the air for like six months. <laughs> so this is the hundredth episode. 105. No, this is sorry, 105. Sorry, yeah. Okay. So the latest of the new year. Okay. That's right. Yeah. yeah first, first nice. of the year. The season started back in November, I think. Yeah, middle, early November. That and then we've right. we've had a couple breaks for holidays and other traveling things. But anyway, Kaylin. So, yeah. So back to your question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I because you wear a lot of hats. Yeah. I I ask myself this question a lot. Like, what what hats or what what is my identity? <laughs> Who am I? Hmm. Um, I, I guess if you were to ask me for like a quick, you know, 20 word bio, it would go something like entrepreneur, technologist, founder, guy, something along those lines. Yeah. And then, and then you give us our 20 seconds back that you did. <laughs> yeah, <use>. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. So you, uh, you founded Dev Mountain. That's probably what you're most known for in the Valley. Uh, yep. how long ago was that? Uh, we started that in 2013. 2013 and then it got purchased by capella right and then they got purchased by someone else right uh at what point did you leave dev mountain let's see so i left um i mean i i was still involved as an advisor to the company until just very recently so i've i've sort of been there even if not full-time up until just the end of last year okay and brandon you have a history with kaylin very dark history (laughs) We've got, we've got issues. Yeah. T- tell us how, uh, how you guys came to, to be, be to be. Yeah. This. I think a lot of it was, I don't know. I, I want to say it was through Tyler. Like, yeah. Tyler Richards, who's the other, one of the other co-founders. Uh, we went to high school together, but then when I was at 90 cent floor, Tyler had a dating app at the time. I think it was like Matchmate or something like that. And he brought me down to the startup building and he was like, oh, yeah, we got this app and we're trying to, like, get more users. And we need advice. Like, we talked for an hour. And I don't, I don't think Dev Mountain had started right then. It's shortly after is when Dev Mountain started, I think. Maybe you would know. Sounds about right. Better than that. But, um, but yeah, then Tyler went through Market Campus for, I think, for Dev Mountain. Yeah. Or maybe it was Startup Ignition. Yeah, I think it was Dev it Mountain. Did. And so, that yeah, then Tyler, yeah, at that point, that's when Tyler was like, man, we got to get you over at dev mountain like we need someone to do the marketing and but that was a while before you actually went to dev mountain yeah and then yeah i and i've been meeting with and and we've always like i think collaborated just because they were a code boot camp um we were a marketing boot camp and i they were like the best in the state so it's like there's a lot of ways we can work together like learn from each other so tyler and i would always share like insights of like what's working for market campus and he would try it there and what's working at dev mountain i would try it and didn't we didn't we all sit on a panel or join an association at one point of like the, the skills association, association. that's yes. right the skills association John Richard started that <laughs> i just removed it from my linkedin profile because it's been sitting there and i'm like not there's not even a website i mean john owns the domain but 
yeah i'm like this didn't go anywhere but <laughs> we got a panel discussion out of it i think yes, people showed up right. as yeah, most projects excited. do when it's started by a serial entrepreneur <laughs> so uh just to just to kind of level set here this episode is not going to be about dev mountain uh but i i like the context uh as to how we we came acquainted. i just met kaylin for the first time 20 minutes ago yeah. So, uh, so this is where our story begins, Kaylin. So, right. so when we're interviewed on another podcast a few years from now, this We've is where it all tape. starts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Kaylin, you now, you left Dev Mountain and you started another project. Yeah. I joined up with another project, uh, here in the Valley, uh, with an old friend of mine, actually, uh, his name's Mick Hagen and the project is called Mainframe. Okay. Tell us about it. So Mainframe is a blockchain company, blockchain powered company. Uh, the, the, the basic kind of one liner of it is it's a, um, it's a development platform for blockchain enabled applications. I'll stop there. Let's just let that sit <laughs> let that there for, sit a for a second. Say that one more time. So, so mainframe is an application mm-hmm. for building decentralized applications or blockchain powered applications. Uh, I was thinking mainframe was like a wallet, so to speak, for cryptocurrency. So this is where it gets tricky because um, due to the nature of blockchain powered projects, uh, there always has to be some currency involved that runs the entire thing, right? Um, and because of that, most projects also have a wallet associated with them because there needs to be some way to store, buy, uh, sell that commodity inside of that little economy, right? You can think of it as sort of each, each one of these companies that are blockchain startups or blockchain companies has essentially their own little microeconomy. And I don't mean just microeconomy and goods and, and, you know, services, trading and selling. It's like their own currency, literally. And so, uh, because of that, there needs to be some place to store that currency. And so there's always a wallet associated with it. Would your wife be able to describe what mainframe does? Wow. That's a good question. I guess you'd have to ask her. (laughs) I I think she would struggle. It's funny you say that because we have asked this question before and then we call the wife. Maybe you should. And put her on the air (laughs) and ask her if they actually do know. Well, we could do that if you want. And yours, uh, your kid answered. That's true. Yeah. Almost felt scripted. It's too good. Almost to felt scripted. <laughs> well, if it all, well, she did a good job then. If it if it wasn't super obvious, uh, um, l- let's call his wife. Hey, I'm down. So she's uh, she's gonna answer. There's an episode. Uh, I don't remember what season yeah, it was. Probably it season up. three, but it's called "Kids Say the Darndest Things," and we called all our spouses and said, "Hey, can you describe what we do for a living?" So uh, yeah, I'm calling her right now. We got some interesting responses. See if she's available. This will be fun. Hey, is uh, is mom around? I'm saying mom instead of mommy. <laughs> hey, is mommy there? <laughs> hey, uh, do you want to be on a podcast for about a minute? Say yes. Just right now. I just need a, I just need you to answer one question on a podcast right now. Okay, awesome. Do I just hold it up? Yeah, just hold it. You put it on speaker and okay. then you'll just hold it right All there. All right, I'm going to put you on speaker for a second. What's your wife's name? My wife's name's Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi. 
So, so my name is Jacob. I've got Brandon here. Uh, we've got your husband on, on our podcast. We're talking about his work and the question came up, uh, does your wife know what mainframe does? Could she explain it? Could she explain it? And, and this isn't the first time we've done this. So, uh, we have some experience in, in calling, uh, spouses out of the blue, but okay. in, in 30 seconds or less, could you, could you describe for us what mainframe does? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from what, do you want me to explain it the way that I always explain it? To oh yeah. People? I would love that. Or, what, okay. So I, first I start out by asking people if they know what, uh, cryptocurrency is. And if they say no, then I'm like, have you heard of Bitcoin? And they're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. So I'm like, okay, it has, it, it's, blockchain is the technology used to create bitcoin so i'm like it's a blockchain based company and they're trying to create what's called a decentralized messaging system and usually people are already lost at that point so i usually just end up saying it's super complicated and confusing and i don't totally know how to explain it so. kim that, <laughs> that was pretty good <laughs> that exceeded all my expectations i love, I love you so much right now <laughs> I, I, I was i was what i was wondering if you're like a paid employee with the with the words that you were using to describe that, that was awesome no. good job yeah, wow usually by the time by the time i get to that point people are confused and i'm like yeah well, moving on i mean yeah 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 no i i think we could end the podcast right now with that explanation and <laughs> And have as much as we need to go. know in the subject. Thank you, Kim. That was awesome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Awesome. Thanks. I'll let you go, babe. Good luck. Okay, You're bye. Too. Wow. That, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm well pretty done. impressed. That was pretty good. Trained her well. Yeah. She's I, asked me the question many times. Too. Well, the way, that you ma- <laughs> you, the way that you made it sound, you're like, you'll have to ask her. It makes it sound like, like it almost felt like a cop out. Like, I, I don't know. I don't but, know. Then, but then you, you brought her on and, and she pulled it out. That was she awesome. She delivered. Okay, so um, not not to backtrack a little bit, but I still don't fully understand. Yeah. So let me give you <laughs> let me give you a couple of metaphors that might help explain what mainframe does. Okay. Um, so if you think of one 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 really easy metaphor to understand for a lot of people is Amazon Web Services. Yeah. If you're familiar with AWS. Yeah. Amazon essentially provides infrastructure and services to applications that are running all over the internet right now. Everything from storage to data processing to uh, communications, you know, technology and infrastructure, just tons of different services. I mean, if you look at AWS and all of the stuff they provide, there's dozens and dozens of Mm -hmm. things that you as a developer or as an enterprise can, can plug into and utilize their infrastructure. Why would you do that instead of running your own? Well, because Amazon has simplified the process of creating that infrastructure so that it's pretty trivial to spin up storage, to spin up cloud computing, to spin up all these different services, right? So it's, it's, they're, they're giving you the convenience and the ease of creating your own infrastructure right. with the click of a yep. button as You're opposed for to ease. Yeah. So uh, mainframe aims to be a similar uh, platform for developers in the blockchain space, in the decentralized space. Uh, if you think, and to take a step back for a second, um, people in the in the blockchain space will refer to Web three. So we, we we in in the normal world we talk about Web two a lot, right? Web two was sort of this um, transition of the internet from being just pages with links on them to like actual applications and software running on the internet. You look at Gmail is a great example, right? Like Gmail started out as just a simple 
uh, web-based email with links and you click on it and you click on the link and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Nowadays, Gmail is much more powerful. In fact, it, it's much more powerful than a lot of the actual downloadable email clients back when it first started, right? Yeah. So it, it is software running on the internet. We call those web applications, right? So um, that's web two, web applications, rich internet, right? Web three, at least in the idea, in the minds of the people that are blockchain enthusiasts, web three is this coming day where all or much of the technology that's used in the world, especially on the web, is powered by decentralized applications and not by centralized authorities. So for example, take email, for example. Email is a decentralized technology, right? Anybody can make their own email server at home. In fact, that's how they used to run. Universities had their own email servers and they talked to each other through a protocol, a shared language. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is nowadays we all are okay with the idea of just Google owning all of our email and running it for us because we don't want to run our own email servers because there's no incentive for us to do that, right? Like we don't have any reason why we, it's, it's a pain. Uh, we have to understand all this technology. We probably have to pay for... Yeah, it's free. Yeah. Gmail's free. Right. So, so Gmail is you know, buying our emails from us so that they can sell it for advertising dollars, mm -hmm. right? So in, in a coming day, again, in the mind of blue, uh, blockchain enthusiasts, we'll transition to the point where we get to Web3, where everything will be built with decentralized technologies and decentralized incentives in place. So no longer will we trust Amazon, Google, Facebook with all of our data, all of our data and, and the networks and the infrastructure that, that run the internet will all be owned individually by us in a decentralized world, right? So they call that Web3. So in that day, uh, that may come someday, Amazon cannot be the middleman between you and your infrastructure, right? Because they are, they would be a point of failure. They would be the centralized, you know, it's kind of anti the whole principles of Web3. So you would need, you would still need to create the infrastructure. You still need to create web applications. If you wanted to create the next Facebook or the next whatever YouTube, you would have to be able to store files on the internet. You'd have to be able to communicate with people. You'd have to be able to do data processing and all of that stuff. It's a lot more tricky or complicated currently in web three than it is in web two and web two. It's a click of a button. Amazon web services makes that easy. Web three, it's not there yet. In fact, we're, if you look at kind of a parallel to the early days of the internet, we're still in like the early to mid nineties when, when it comes to blockchain technology and web three. So we have a long ways to go to make it so that technology and web applications can run efficiently in this web three paradigm and mainframe aims to be the platform that helps developers onboard and, and get into that world. Another metaphor I'll use just to kind of give a different side of it from a consumer perspective, right? So that's from a, from a developer perspective, Amazon web services. Okay. I kind of get it right mm -hmm. from a consumer perspective. If you think, if you think of the internet in the early nineties to mid you know nineties, when not many people were actually getting on the internet yet. It was not ubiquitous. It was not like everybody's just always connected. You had to go through a lot of steps just to get your computer to connect to the internet. You had to download special firmware, uh, depending which version of Windows you were using, to dial into an internet service provider to then connect you to the internet. You weren't even sure what you did after that. You had, you had to download a browser. What do you do with the browser? Like people, this was all new to people, right? So along came this thing called AOL. And Nowadays, AOL is kind of this funny, like, you know, we take pot shots at AOL because right. they're just so lame. Yeah. But in back in the day, AOL, AOL served a very important purpose. Yeah, back then they were the bomb. It onboarded everybody into the internet. It simplified the process of you and I, or our parents, right, getting on the internet. They didn't have to worry about all the hardware and all that stuff. They, I mean, 
in theory, they, they still did, but you know what I mean? It simplified yeah, yeah. the process greatly. So for a consumer, mainframe looks like a browser. It looks like a window into Web3 where they can easily get in this world and use things and play around with things without having to use all, without having to understand all of the much more complicated technicalities and infrastructure that's required to make that happen. Wallets are an example of that, right? And mm -hmm. Web3, um, and again, I'm going to use the example of a future decentralized Facebook, right? If we want to build a Facebook where we all own our own data and our relationships with our friends, Facebook doesn't own it, then somebody has to pay for that. Somebody has to pay for all of that system to run. Well, in one, you know, in one version of that future, we as the consumers pay. Maybe we pay $2 a month to be able to use Facebook and like and comment and post and whatever, right? So if we're going to be paying, then there has to be this concept of a wallet and this currency that goes out and is used. And that currency is not US dollars, at least not in the current state of blockchain-based mm -hmm. applications. You so, think it ever will be? Um, I don't think it will ever be US dollars. So they wouldn't like, they wouldn't be like a, what's that called? Uh, Bitcoin? No, 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 no. When you like uh, transfer one one currency to another. Just like exchange of foreign yeah, exchange? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, like an exchange, right? So whatever, whatever the values are, you just kind of exchange one for the other. I mean, that's kind of how it works anyway. So that it? there will definitely be exchanges. There are exchanges. They're one of the most critical pieces of this whole thing to work because there's going to be many types of currencies and they all have to be able to quickly convert from one to another. U.S. dollars, at least the way that they're currently regulated and, and built and printed are not, they don't translate well into a digital cryptocurrency yeah. paradigm, right? Uh, they're regulated by the U.S. government. Uh, you can't, you know, I mean, in terms of cash, you can just hand cash to somebody else, but you can't digitally hand U.S. dollars to somebody else without a lot of middlemen and, you know, transfer and money licenses and stuff that are all regulated heavily by the United like States. Like a Venmo. Right. Although, so Venmo, it, although it seems easy, there are still third parties and regulations and right. financial institutions involved, whether Absolutely. it's your bank, my bank, Venmo, government, all that stuff. Yeah. So if you look at, if you look at, so, so now we're kind of taking a tangent for a second. If yeah, you look, are. if you look at, welcome uh, to the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you look at cryptocurrency as, as a financial application, it already has a ton of power, right? And this, this might help you to understand why do we need these blockchain powered companies, right? So everybody understands Bitcoin. Well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a lot of things, but one, one utility that it provides to people is it allows them to transfer money without the need of any central authority to get money from point A to point B. So if I have um, a friend that lives in Africa and I need to get this person money, think about all the steps that it would require for me to get per that person money, assuming that I already have money in my bank to send them, right? At best, I can make a wire transfer to their bank in Africa, right? Which is already a ridiculously slow mm -hmm. process that requires banks on either side and all kinds of approvals and whatever, right? Now let's pretend that person in Africa doesn't even have a bank. How do I get them money from here to Africa, right? Well, who knows, right? Like you don't just mail them US dollars because the US dollars don't do any good to them in, in Africa, right? Or at least, you know, in this scenario that I'm making up off the top of my head. Um, so, so Bitcoin, one of the utilities that it provides is that it, it allows you to transfer value from one person to the next in a seamless uh, way that doesn't require any centralized authority. So how is it done? Like, do you just email them a... So this is where the technology kind of gets a little bit more technical. The, the best way to describe it is um, 
there's kind of two sides to how, how Bitcoin or any blockchain based project works. There is the network itself that powers the transactions that are created. And then there are the individual participants in that network. And you can think of it in kind of a typical traditional like idea of a network and a network you have you think of it like a web right and each little dot in that web is called a node right so the nodes would be the participants in the network and the network itself is this holistic view of what's happening so what what is happening at the heart of bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency is the network itself doesn't have any one person that says this transaction is valid this person can transfer money to this person what you have is a lot of people that are all validating transactions. And they're doing this through a very cryptographically, computationally intense process that requires them to kind of put in some investment in the form of work, right? So they're solving math problems, they're solving these cryptographical puzzles in order to get the ability to validate somebody else's transactions. And when they do that, they're rewarded, they're incentivized to do that. They mm -hmm. get Bitcoin if they're able to do that. So the system is sort of self-contained self and self-incentivized where the system itself creates new Bitcoin for people that are doing the work they're they're validating transactions they're saying yes you can transfer money from here to here and that that utility or that um the way that that network is powered provides utility to all the participants in the network because because now they don't have to rely on anybody in particular to validate their transactions they don't have to worry that one person is actually being run by a fraudulent hacker and is just going to steal all their money right so the way the way it actually works to get back to your question is each node in that network has an address it has a special address that um, that you can hold Bitcoin in and you can use anybody else's address to send Bitcoin to. Now that address doesn't give you any power. It's not like a bank account number where if I gave you my bank account number, you might be able to go try to charge me stuff mm -hmm. or do an ACH charge or something like that. This address is purely just, it's like a, it's like an email address, right? Where you might be able, it's not even as bad as an email address. You can't even um, just send people, you could send me free money, I guess but you can't request anything from me. Uh, you can't necessarily bother me with, yeah. with my Bitcoin address. Yeah. So with these addresses is how we would actually send the money. Okay, so so that's the end of my tangent. I do <laughs> want to bring it back okay. uh, to the mainframe stuff. Who, okay. Who's your target audience? Who are you trying to get to purchase your services or, or that platform? So, uh, and I'll go back to the AOL example just to keep it very- Oh, actually, sorry, before yeah. we move on. It was your AOL example that reminded me of this. Your first example was Amazon. And it was mm -hmm. like, oh, mainframes like Amazon. Okay, that's cool. So they're going to be this behemoth huge company in the next 10 years. And then you used AOL as an example. I was like, well, hopefully hopefully mainframes not like AOL. In the next and 10 the, In years. 20 years, <laughs> we're all taking pot shots at, at mainframe. Right. Anyway, okay. You were about to talk about AOL again. Yeah, so in, in uh, sorry, remember your question one more time. So who's your, who's oh, your, target yeah, your target right. audience? So the target audience for the infrastructure itself are developers. So the same people that use Amazon Web Services could in, in the future use the mainframe platform to deploy their applications. Okay. Uh, and uh, how how is it uh, monetized? How are you monetizing your, is it a monthly, like, is it a SaaS fee? So this is the interesting part. Um, if you take or, or away- do you only take cryptocurrency as payment? Well, there, so, so I guess number one, we don't really have a revenue model today, meaning uh, we're interested in creating a network of you. It's sort of like a social network thing where you're sort of creating the network and, and trying to get the effects and the utility, and then you'll figure out how to monetize it down the road. So yeah. that, that's sort of the plan yeah. to start out with. There's lots of ways it could be monetized, um, including like if, you were th if you're thinking about Amazon and the services they provide. And again, it's different because we're not actually 
creating the infrastructure, we're enabling them to access other infrastructure. We could just charge like a tax or a fee for developers to have the convenience of building on our platform, make it a ton easier to build these applications, and we charge a tax on everything that gets charged uh, by every the consumers, right? Every transaction. So like is that is that kind of like um, credit card companies? So yeah. they they take a percentage of every transaction that is made. Um, that is at yeah. That, place. that is one. Okay. That is one way to think of a monetization strategy. Gotcha. Yeah. So one clarification, I guess, going back with like the blockchain stuff, you mentioned email is decentralized. Yep. Are you referring to uh, a, a company like, or I guess not company, a service like Gmail is d decentralized or having your own server at home, that's decentralized? The technology of email itself is decentralized. It is not proprietary. Anybody can create an email client at, uh, or an email server at their home gotcha. w without any approval, licensing, whatever, right? Like mm -hmm. the technology itself is decentralized and the way email servers talk to each other is also decentralized because there's no central authority that says, okay, this email can go from here to here. It's like the post office, right? Yeah. All you need is an address, an email address, and mm -hmm. that address resolves to an IP address. And so you send certain communications and the email protocol language to that address. And then mm -hmm. just like the web, right? The web is, is, is protocols too. HTTP is a protocol where you say, hey server, I need some information from you. And the server, you speak that language and the server says, okay, I'll send you back this web page, right? Email is essentially the same thing where you say, hey, address, I want to send an email to you. And, and you speak this language of email mm -hmm. and the server can, can receive that. Now, it's decentralized because it doesn't require any central authority to make those emails happen. Gotcha. Uh -huh. And you're asking, Brandon, because... Technically, it is centralized because all emails are housed on the Google servers. So nowadays, yeah. the email we know today in the 21st century looks very centralized because yeah. it all goes through Microsoft, Google, Facebook, whatever, right? So no longer is it truly decentralized. I mean, the technology is, but it's all just being housed in one huge mm -hmm. repository, yeah. right? Which, which creates problems. Uh, mm -hmm. Number one, there's, there's some political ideological problems there where if Google is residing in some other country and that, you know, Vietnam, I think just recently announced that it's gonna put down some pretty strange and heavy censorship stuff when it comes to outside companies. So if, if Vietnam comes to Google and says, hey, we think we have dissidents in our country that are sending anti-government emails back and forth, we need you to give those people's identities to us. Google would in theory have to give that up and has proven in the past that they will do so given the right, you know, environment. So that that's a problem for us normal citizens because now this decentralized technology is actually being hijacked and used to censor us or surveil us, uh, mm -hmm. which may or may not be good depending on where you live and your pr political views. Um, the other and reason what you're sending through email, right? The other reason this is bad is, um, if Google gets hacked, right? So since, since Google houses all of this treasure trove of information, it's a huge target for hackers. It's the reason why we have these enterprise hacks ha happening over and over because everybody looks at Experian and says, oh, there's so much good info in there. Let's put all of our hacking resources and try to hack Experian and we'll get all that information out of it. If somehow Experian were this decentralized system where no one single server held all the information, then it would be, it would be useless to try to hack Experian because you'd have to hack a million computers rather than a single server or subnet or whatever, uh, you know, I'm sure it's not a yeah. single server, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, so, so that's the other drawback of having Google own all your emails. They're a target. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but they're, they're disincentivized to decentralize. Oh, absolutely. So even though they're, that us as, as a people are like, we want our privacy. We don't want, we don't want you to be a target. They would do everything possible to prevent 
decentralization of their oh sure of their own yeah they'd stuff. want to protect that that uh, monopoly well not technically kind monopoly of, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah. largely a monopoly in the case of Google and email uh, and you think about why why did we get in this position and this is kind of this is an old computer science problem right decentralized networks are not anything new uh, they're they're they've been around for a long time. people have thought about them for a long time e you know email is a great example. Um, but why did email turn into a centralized technology? Well, it's because there was no incentive for you and me to run our own email servers. We had no incentive to do so. If we got paid every time we routed somebody's email from one place to another, we would have much more incentive mm -hmm. to run our own email servers. Because now it's like, oh, if I just leave my email server running on my computer, I could come home and suddenly there's 15 bucks that I've earned today just by leaving my computer on. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. So now you have incentive to participate. And that's essentially what Bitcoin from a, from a network perspective, from a computer science perspective, the big innovation of Bitcoin is, is it created this system where you can decentralize or you can create these de decentralized networks that are incentivized and that have, that have incentivization built in so they will keep running no matter what, no matter if uh, people decide to stop using it or the company goes under or whatever. And, and, and there's like, there are fail safes included in this where there are multiple copies of, of the same information on multiple yeah, that's, so when you hear uh, the ledger, you hear this idea of a distributed ledger, uh, that is that is what, exactly what you're talking about. All of these participants in the network, and in the case of Bitcoin, all of the participants in the network of Bitcoin have every single transaction in a huge ledger all in front of them. So it's hard for somebody to just come in and say, oh yeah, I remember last week when I actually, you know, you actually sent me $500, but you're just sneaking it in and you're trying to yeah. fraudulently do that. All the other nodes in the network will say, well, no, I have all of last week's transaction and that never took place. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're a bad actor. You can't play in our network. Right. Yeah. So that, that's the power of the decentralization is it's sort of power in numbers, right? If everybody in the network says these transactions are valid, then you can trust that. And they, one of the buzzwords that floats around is a trustless system. So by trusting no one, we can trust sort of everyone, right? The whole oh, network fun. as a whole. That sounds like a good uh, mantra <laughs> that, that people in your field probably use a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good uh, good <laughs> mantras like that. Don't trust anybody. No, I like that. <laughs> so coming back to mainframe, uh, who are your competitors? Wow, that's uh, it depends on how it sort of depends on which lens or which angle you're looking at it from. I mean, if you look at it from a web two to web three perspective, it would be like AWS, right? Yeah. So we would need people to switch from or build their new projects on decentralized architecture, decentralized infrastructure using mainframe as opposed to an AWS or a Heroku or, or whatever, right? Um, so, so in that case, we're c competing with all of the digital infrastructure service providers in Web 2. Um, in the new space, in Web 3, there are other companies trying to do the same thing. Everybody kind of has their own unique angle on it. It's sort of like the early browser wars of the internet where it's like Netscape Navigator and Mozilla, like... How are they different? Mm -hmm. Are they yeah. competing? Are they the same? They're sort of all breaking new ground at the same time. That, that's kind of how we feel in this space right now. I don't even think we're to the point where we can call ourselves competitors yet because the space is still so new that, um, I mean, there's not a lot of user adoption yet. So it's, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of pre the days of even trying to battle for, you know, market share in terms of browser usage. So, I, I, I mean, it sounds like you guys are an underdog as far as trying to change I mean, you're, change, you're trying to change culture. You're trying to change the way people consume and use technology. I would say the whole uh, cryptocurrency industry is an underdog. Yeah. So who, if, if that's the case, then who who's the Goliath? Are, are they the Googles and Amazons who are going to be the biggest barrier for, for, for you guys breaking through into 
uh, the the kind of success that AOL or, or Amazon had early on? I think, and this this again, you can look at from a few different angles and see different competitors. So from a from a, you know, when you look at the financial utility of cryptocurrency, right? Who are your competitors there? Well, it's governments, right? Because yeah. governments regulate currency uh, and, and, you know, the way currency flows. And that arguably is one of the government's greatest powers is that they have the ability to, to regulate currency. So um, for, for cryptocurrency to reach a, a mainstream where we're all using Bitcoin instead of U.S. dollars, that's going to require some major disruption of governments for mm -hmm. that to work, yeah. right? So that's, that's kind of the financial side. From an infrastructure side, from a data side, and maybe I should take a step back and explain this because this is this was what really turned me on to the space because I had heard of Bitcoin, you know, it's, oh, this is exciting. People are making a lot of money off of Bitcoin, whatever. Sounds really cool. Digital money. Let's send it back and forth. I, I sort of learned about this years ago, but never really got into it. What got me into it was this idea of so Bitcoin stores all of the transactions in the cloud or sorry, in, in the network, not the cloud. Um, they store all these transactions in this in this distributed ledger. It, this whole system works. It's great. But if you start thinking of data being stored, not just transactions, it, it becomes more powerful. And, and I'll give you an example, again, back to the sort of decentralized Facebook. If you were to go on Facebook today and delete your account, all of your network connections, all of the likes, comments, posts, or whatever would be gone, right? Unless you sort of try to pull them down or export them or something like that. And, and even with uh, their terms of use, like, Facebook actually owns all of the content that you put on there. So it's not mm -hmm. even yours to, to pull down to begin with. In, uh, if you think about how this decentralized, these decentralized networks work, if I can store data and have other people store that data for me and they don't actually I don't actually have to uh, give them ownership over it, but there's an incentive for them to store it. Suddenly we have this world where everybody can store all of, all of each other's stuff and we don't have to rely on any one person or any one group to do so, right? So Facebook, if in theory, if Facebook were built today on blockchain technology rather than what it's built on right now, I could sign off of Facebook, delete my account, and still have all of those relationships with my friends, all of the comments, posts, likes, whatever. They would all still belong to me because they are all cryptographically linked with my address, right? So that's that was for me as a developer, a really exciting thing where it's like, oh my gosh, you mean as a developer, I don't have to build on the Facebooks or build on the Googles and just hope that they never shut me down, right? Like, so early on in my career, I was building a social network uh, company, right? And we weren't trying to compete with Facebook or anything. We were simply trying to leverage the data that was there and create kind of a, a one, uh, you know, one feed to rule them all, right? So you got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let's create one single feed where you just scroll down one list and you see all your tweets and all of your Instagram posts and all of your, your Facebook posts, mm -hmm. right? That was great until Twitter or Facebook or whatever decides to cut off your access as a developer to that API. Well, now it's like you're up a creek without a paddle because you relied on them for everything. And that's developers got really, really tired of that. And that's one reason why developers are trying to move into this Web3 space because all of the data is out there already. It's just, you know, being able to manage it, access it, you know, move it from one place to another. Mm -hmm. So from a hardware perspective, I guess trying to visualize the whole De decentralizing everything uh you have you know aws like amazon has server farms everywhere google has server farms and that's where all the data is stored and they own it in the decentralized world I, I would assume no one wants to go back to the days of like having to set up a home server type stuff um 
I mean, maybe they do, and maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but it seems like the, the hope for the W3 world is that I have a MacBook which has extra space on it. I've got a phone which has extra space. I'm basically allowing people to say, yeah, you can store data on here. It's encrypted. I don't have access to it. And that's the world of decentralized yep. internet. But I feel like at, like at some point, someone's always going to be overlooking everything. Like even whether you're the browser to get access, like there's always someone you got to go through who controls it, who essentially then has ways of accessing well, I think, the data. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, and maybe we're just all so used to the current, you know, yeah. middlemen laden world where that just, we can't imagine a world without yeah. the Googles and the Facebooks, right? If you think about, I'll use a different example here, like Uber, right? What is Uber? Uber is essentially connecting drivers with riders and facilitating monetary transactions. That, that is Uber, right? They, they, they give you an app, a front end, a client to their whole system that allows you to find a, a driver. They come and pick you up and the service happens outside of Uber, but they're just sort of making sure that they connect the dots and the, the money gets paid, right? In a decentralized world, um, you would never have to have one company that, that does all of that. All of those connections could already exist, but there could be multiple different apps that do the same thing, but that all use the same data. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So think of the database of all the Uber drivers and all the Uber riders just being out there open for anybody to access. So now it's just a race and a competition to see who builds the best client, who builds the best front end for that system for that Uber system, right? And it could be Uber. It also could be some other company. It also could be some developer in his garage that just made a really awesome experience. And now that developer has to figure out how to monetize that. Is it a tax? Mm -hmm. Is it some sort of, you know, pay for my app type of thing? I don't know. Um, but that that's kind of, when you think about overlooking, yeah, I mean, you're always gonna have to go through something, mm -hmm. but you have a lot more choices, right? Like Microsoft, their big thing, you know, the reason they got in trouble was because it was sort of like you had to use only Microsoft stuff to do anything, you know, back in the day in Windows. Uh, in a decentralized world, you have potentially a lot more choices because there's nothing you have to go through. Nothing's proprietary. There's no intermediary that you have to use in order to get something done. It's interesting. That is very interesting because that, I imagine, would be the worst nightmare of any of the big companies that are out there right now because the way they make money is having proprietary data yeah. that no one has access to. Yeah. So if you get rid of that, then there's no reason that that those companies would stick around. Well, you look at, I mean, even, even nowadays with privacy issues, um, with government, you know, surveillance, uh, with hacking, the balance of power is largely in the hands of these huge intermediaries, right? They're, 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 we just as normal citizens can't really do a lot. I mean, how many times have you seen on Facebook these quote unquote petitions mm -hmm. to like stop something that Facebook is changing in their terms of use? And they're yeah. all just ridiculous and a waste of time because mm -hmm. Facebook, I mean, nothing's ever going to change, right? Yeah. We have no power as consumers of these networks. We've, we've sold our souls as it were, and we all our data belongs to them. And we just have to hope that they're going to do good things with it. But in the future where we all own our data again, suddenly, uh, we can demand a lot more from our pr service providers and we can make other choices if we decide that they're not using our data appropriately. Here's my rebuttal to that though. Okay, I feel like at it. the end of the day, Americans want to stick with Americans. We'll say humans. Humans are like stupid people. Yep. And you look at debt. Wait, Everyone complains. Wait. Humans are like stupid people. No. Okay. Humans, humans are stupid. Oh, humans are stupid. Okay. There we go. That's a little better. Thank you for <laughs> correcting that. Um, but like you look at debt, everybody hates debt and they complain about it and they protest. 
yet everybody consumes debt. And then I, I feel like we're in the same area with privacy. Like everybody complains about privacy and how dare Mark Zuckerberg do this. And then they go right back to their world of just That's like, right. because of the convenience at the end of the day. And there's, there's no like, alternatives. Yeah. There's right? no alternative. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are alternatives, but nobody realistically is looking it's that at convenience them, right? factor of, and so I, I feel like that's the biggest uphill battle. And maybe, I guess that's kind of oh, getting you're, to what you're exactly is right. trying to solve is. You're exactly right. And I think there's a few uphill battles if you look at it. Some of the biggest challenges the industry faces. One is if we're in the early days of the internet, usability is a big problem, right? In the early days of the internet, connecting to the ISP, downloading the firmware, getting yep. your phone line connected, all of that is a huge pain. It was a huge barrier to entry for normal users of the internet, right? So that that is one thing that is is... 100% a problem in the blockchain space right now. If I were to show you what you'd have to do to use a blockchain-based application right now, mm -hmm. it would blow your mind and you'd be like, why would anybody ever want to do this, right? And only only the most purest, idealist people will go through all of those steps to actually accomplish that. So you're right. Mm -hmm. Usability yeah. is one big reason why uh, this is not happening today right now. So that's going to get better. That's going to have to get better for this to, to take root. Um, another problem is, is sort of this idea. So you look at... Um, you look at China, uh, for example, and a lot of people will say that, you know, China is this uh, oppressive place where you can't share opinions for you. you can't even look at a lot of pages on the Internet because of government censorship. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's all fine and dandy. And if we went to China and created a decentralized uh, communication app where suddenly people can communicate with privacy without an intermediary, without, you know, getting shut down by somebody, that's exciting. But for the average Chinese citizen, if you don't have cat emojis in there, they're probably not going to use it. Let's be honest, right? So that's kind of the usability thing slash like it needs to look as good as and provide the same level of, of you know, services and comfort. It needs to be a viable alternative before people will switch. Um, Venezuela, uh, you know, is an, Venezuela has a huge problem with currency right now. And yet, how do you get how do you get Bitcoin technology? How do you get people to use all of these technologies that will actually make their lives better and, and provide a relief from the, you know, the currency problems they're having. It's the same, you know, usability, the technology's not there yet. It, it, there's a lot of uphill battles that need to be fought in this space for that to happen. And, and mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think the jury is out on this idea of will, in the end, will people actually use this technology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, will it take a generation? Will it take five generations? Will it ever happen at all where people will actually say, you know what, I am not, I, I'm no longer going to give my, my data over to Facebook and I'm actually going to go with this other alternative that's going to make this data mine. And I, I think it's, you know, the internet was sort of a generational thing. Like my parents, why would I send an email to somebody when I can call them on the phone? Well, turns out nowadays uh, people don't even use phones hardly for calling people anymore. It's texting mm -hmm. and phone calls, right? And Facebook is another example, right? It, I, I think yours and my generation are a lot more sort of the Facebook generation where we yeah. saw Facebook take it. The younger generations don't use Facebook. So Facebook is already kind of facing this identity crisis of like, how do we reach the younger generation? Do we try to acquire companies like Snapchat and the next big thing to get them in there? So I think there will be opportunities for people to choose decentralized alternatives if we can get there, you know, on the technology side and yeah. the usability side. So that's, um, I have two questions before we move on to the final segment, which we and haven't I told had you about. I two questions. Do you want to do yours first? Well, maybe they're the same. Maybe I'll <laughs> go first then. <laughs> so, uh, you talk about this generational adaptation. I, I imagine, well, f first, um, I, I say two questions. I may have some little things that set up my questions, but uh, is mainframe, uh, is it a funded uh, venture? Like you have investors, like wh where's the money coming from? Is that? 
Yeah, great question. So what um, what many projects in this space have done is they will pre-sell their currency to people. So if, uh, I'm trying to give a good example here. If we were gonna create um, a, a, a gaming arcade together, if we were all gonna create a really sweet arcade that was gonna run on tokens that we mint ourselves, mm-hmm. we might, one way of funding that venture might be to go actually sell those tokens to the general public and say, hey, when we get our thing built, you're gonna be able to walk in the door and use these tokens and play all the games you want. That's sort of how most projects, a lot of projects in the space have been funded, including mainframe. So we basically said, this is what we're trying to build, this platform. You're gonna need this currency in this platform to to make your stuff work. So we're gonna actually give you, we're gonna sell these tokens to you now so that you have the ability later on to use the the platform. Sounds like Kickstarter. Yeah, very, very similar to like a Kickstarter. I think the biggest difference is instead of us just, instead of you just hoping we deliver kind of some future uh, product yeah. or, or a nice t-shirt or something like that, you're actually getting digital tokens that are tradable and liquid today. So, you know, imagine if, if on Kickstarter, you know, the next big, big, big project, you were actually getting some security or some stock or some, something of value in that company. And you were able to trade that, like that would be a really, really powerful thing for those platforms. So are, are these the developers you were talking about before who are prepaying Many developers are, are the first to invest in this because they see the value in it and they're, you know, they, they get the, the tech behind it. What happened last year in 2018 and 2017 was there was sort of this big boom in, uh, so this process of pre-selling tokens is called an ICO typically. Um, and there was this big boom in ICOs because a bunch of projects kind of all followed the same suit and they said, hey, we're gonna be a project and we're gonna be a project and here's the value. We're gonna provide everything from file storage to um, decentralized Wi-Fi sharing, like all kinds of stuff. And they all pre-sold their tokens. And so there was kind of this big boom in the industry, a ton of money flowed in, people were making ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, and and the, the mania kind of took over, a bubble formed and, and has since kind of popped. So now the, the investment levels have come down a significant amount. Similar to, yeah. if we want to make another parallel, similar to the early dot-com days of the internet, where it was like, everything's going to be on the internet. This is going to be so exciting. Pets.com should get all of this money and they're going to go public and it's going to be great. Uh, and then it was like, Oh wait, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense for everybody to be on the internet. Um, so that, that's how most companies fund in this space. Okay. So I, I guess, I guess the follow up to that is like, when you talk about generational change, my question is how do you convince people? And maybe you don't, maybe you only go after the people who are already convinced that this is the future, but how do you go to people who are not, convinced and who are skeptical or whatever, and you convince them, Hey, this, this is the future. And, and I imagine that you're, that that's the path that you, or, or your mentality where, Hey, this is the future. Otherwise you probably wouldn't be in this space, but, yeah. but what's that, what's the strategy there? Uh, because saying this is a generational change would be like, so, uh, the opposite of motivating. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. Oh, so I'm investing in this now, but I have to wait until my grandkids adopt it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you look at um, if you look at the dot com days of the internet, if you look at the early companies that started, Amazon, Google, right? These early these early companies on the internet. If you had the ability financially to invest in them in their early days, you'd you'd see a pretty crazy return yeah. on yep. your money, right? So that is one motivation for people is like, hey, if I am able to pick 
uh, a winner in this new category, this new internet, this new paradigm, then that's going to make me a buttload of money. And that's exciting to me. So that, that is, that is one motivation people might have yeah, yeah. in investing. And that's partly what formed the bubble is everybody was just jumping on the bandwagon yep. and saying, I don't even know what Bitcoin is, but if I put my money here, it turns into 10 times its money in two weeks. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think another motivator is the technological side of it, right? You're appealing to the idealists and the early adopters of the technology and saying, look, uh, this is a valuable thing. And a lot of times these people are the same people, right? Because if, if I'm looking at the Amazon in 1998 or 1997, and I'm saying, wow, these people are going to do something amazing someday because I understand what they're trying to do and the problem they're trying to solve. I'm going to give them my money. I'm also going to use their service, right? So, so there's kind of the users of the technology themselves. There's the, the developers that, that see the tech as a viable alternative. Uh, and there's the financial kind of opportunists that see, you know, money to be made. Sometimes those are the same people. Sometimes they're three different groups of people. Um, I was going to say something about the, uh, the consumers of it. Uh, I can't remember what it was. Anyway. Well, I imagine, I imagine that at, uh, talking generationally, you, you think about how uh, insanely smart younger kids are when it comes to technology. Uh, e even cryptocurrency and, and all this stuff is hard for me to understand. I imagine, because I was grew up, I was like, all this technology is easy. Well, like, why are my parents and grandparents having such a hard time? But as I'm like right in the middle and I'm seeing, oh, all these new technologies are coming out, but I don't really care about those. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like holding on to the old stuff. I can see how eventually my kids are going to be thinking, gosh, dad, he doesn't know. He doesn't know anything about technology. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of scary considering that's like my whole career is in tech so what i had i had an example of this the other day i was i was um you know uploading pictures from uh, my phone to a cloud storage service because i needed to just upload them off my phone and i wanted mm -hmm. to save them right and i was looking i started looking through my old folders of uh you know images and like went back to like 2003 and 2004 and i was kind of amazed at how hard it used to be just to take a picture and get it onto a computer Right. Like think about how difficult that used to be. Mm -hmm. It's like you had to have, first of all, a digital camera that had the right, you know, and, and who knows what hardware, or what SD card it even used at the time. And well, even get, before that, you had to like scan it in. Right. right? Yeah. So, so so you have all of these these barriers and these little tricks. And but nowadays it's so ubiquitous. Right. Everything is just, you know, Bluetooth or, you know, AirPlay, Wi-Fi. It's all just sort of assumed that it's there and it's easy. And since we've kind of seen the shift, it, it's easier for us to understand than somebody who's just sort of looking at it for the first time and saying, wait, yeah, what, what are you asking me to do? I think that will happen in the blockchain space. At some point, you know, I was, I hope at some point I keep meaning to do this with my kids, but I want to give them each like a Bitcoin enabled device and have like a tiny amount of money on there. And I want them to start actually using it and transacting with it so that they just sort of grow up with this understanding of like, Oh yeah, this is what happens. That's cool. Brandon, you got two questions. Uh, I'll make, I'll make it one because right, one consolidate. of them. Yeah. I'll consolidate a little bit. I still don't know how to ask this mainly one of the big concerns of blockchain technology from looking down the road is obviously criminal activity. You always hear that, uh, you know, you have, illegal sales and whatnot. As I think about it, and I was just kind of doing some light searching, you have the dark web, mm -hmm. which it seems very similar to what blockchain technology is. It's untraceable. You have to use special software to access that data. Uh, everything's anonymous. It seems like that's very similar to blockchain. So, and, and that's where the government, I feel like is going to be the biggest opponent of blockchain. I mean, crypto obviously has a slightly different threat, but, uh, do you have opinions on that of 
is that going to be like the biggest roadblock of criminals start using blockchain technology for all their stuff and now the government can't trace it or will the government always have a way of accessing all the information even in this ideal w3 environment that's a great question um so at mainframe I, I i used to joke that every week somebody was having like an identity crisis and they would realize that what we're building could enable like some terrible thing to mm -hmm. you know we could enable the next social network of white supremacists uh, white supremacists to operate completely you know unhindered by any government or fbi or whatever right uh, that could be our legacy is we create something that just enables bad people to do bad things. Like Any, the Terminator program. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anytime you create technology that, that enables freedom, you are taking that risk, right? Yeah. You're, you are saying, I really hope that good people are going to do good things on this rather than bad people do bad things. I think Bitcoin got an early, it got an early bad reputation because one of the first, one of the first groups to move into that space were people that realized like, oh, if I don't have to use actual cash, to transact, say drugs, mm -hmm. uh, that's really cool because now I don't have to worry about uh, laundering my money. I don't have to worry about transmitting that money to somebody and not getting it noticed by somebody else. This is a really cool digital way for me to buy drugs from you mm -hmm. and not have anybody else really know what's happening, right? And so uh, the initial, arguably the initial bubble of Bitcoin price back in 2012 or so was fueled by uh, this online marketplace called the, um, uh, the Silk Road which yeah. was an online, you probably remember this. It was this place where you could go online and it was like the Amazon for drugs. And you could look and say, oh, well, there's crack guns there's, there's as well. Yeah, you, they, they expanded to guns after a while. There was even- Hitmen. Yeah, there was, hit, was supposedly <laughs> Hitman, all this kind of stuff. And it was all financed by Bitcoin because it was like, oh, well, if, if we can use this way, because that's how the, you know, a lot of times law enforcement tracks down the stuff and, and, and fights these people is that they're able to figure out where the money's flowing. Mm -hmm. Well, so, and let's use the Silk Road as an example. The founder of the Silk Road was taken down using law enforcement techniques where they were able to infiltrate the society, you know, this, this, this company. They were able to have people doing investigatory undercover work and they were able to finally uncover all the stuff and have charges. They were able to find where the guy physically was. They showed up and they arrested him, right? So there's nothing saying, I, I guess there's two answers to that question. Number one is this idea of philosophically, just because bad people might do bad things isn't a good enough reason to not enable freedom, mm -hmm. right? So yes, we may be enabling white supremacists to communicate, but we also may be enabling, uh, you know, oppressed citizens of some country to be able to finally have conversations without fear of being killed or kidnapped or tortured. Right. So there's both sides of that coin. The other, the other consideration is, um, law enforcement will have to adapt with, with, with every piece of technology that comes out with cell phones. They had to adapt with, uh, with fax machines. I, I assume every new technological advancement creates challenges, difficulties, and maybe even opportunities for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing, I was even talking to somebody about this earlier today. Uh, cash is actually a lot less traceable in many ways than Bitcoin is because in Bitcoin, everybody, remember everybody has this ledger of all the transactions and you can see where money is going. Anybody can look on the Bitcoin ledger and see where money is going back and forth. People do it all the time. The, the challenge is who's behind the address. The, mm -hmm. the anonymity of it is maybe what scares a lot of people. Well, law enforcement, if they're trying to track down bad guys, they're going to have to use, you know, their skills as law enforcement people to figure out who's behind those addresses and where they live and how we're going to charge them with a crime. Right? So, I think that it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. We may we may inadvertently create some some bad groups of people that do bad things, but I sure hope that we create a lot of good uh, with this technology as well. Does that satisfy the? The NSA will always find a way. That's right. <laughs>
So <laughs> cool. You guys are conveniently located right next to them. <laughs> up in Lehigh. Well, the great thing is that we're not housing any technology here. So, and, and honestly, you know, again, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not trying to enable, you know, uh, drug marketplaces or white supremacists, anything like that. Uh, but we're trying to be conscious and aware that that could be uh, a side, uh, you know, a side effect of creating this technology. And so there's things that we can do, you know, just like the internet, you know, the dark web is kind of buried in this shady corner of this, mm-hmm. you know, bar of dirty, you know, whatever. It's like, you have to, you have to go there. You have to really be wanting to, to go there to find it. And I think, you know, people like us and hopefully other people in the space that create the new browsers of the new web will, will do similar things. They'll try to point you in the directions that, uh, that most people will want to go and most people will mm-hmm. want to do and share data and, and transact and things like that. Cool. So we've got one more segment. Uh, we don't have a ton of time, so it'll be a short segment, but we call it digital marketing roulette. So uh, Brandon's going to pull out our roulette board. Uh, we're going to throw the ball and then we have a number, whatever the number it lands on, we have a corresponding question. Okay. So this is kind of like a fun Q and a section, but the questions could be uh, marketing related. It could be um, personal. It could be, I mean, it's just, could be random. Sounds great. Not so, too personal. Not yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we threw some in there. Who knows? So it is uh, season five. Five after all. That's right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. As soon as this ball lands, we'll have a corresponding question for you to answer. All right. Jacob doesn't like to hear the color, but it was red seven. Hmm. Let me pull up the uh, question here. All right. Um, what social network do you spend the most time on and why? Oh, I have to think about that. Um, I have dramatically lowered my usage of social networks in the last few years. Uh, I, I don't like, and this is sort of like a, the old person in me coming out. I'm a dad now. I've got preteens. I don't like what I'm seeing it do to kids. I don't like what I'm seeing it do to mental health to people. So I, I, I guess with that caveat of like, I don't use social networks uh-huh. a ton, it would have to be like Facebook uh, connecting with family and Instagram kind of connecting with friends. Uh, probably the two of those pretty evenly matched. Instagram. I should say Kalen has a, an Instagram account or him and a buddy. It's like, how many, how many followers do you guys have? I think we're about to crack 60,000. So and it's like a golf bad. Account. You ever heard of a house of highlights? No. Bleacher Report? I've heard of Bleacher. It's like Bleacher Report, but golf and cooler. I was actually very impressed. You know, Bleacher Report has a golf section, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're we're coming for them. Yeah, it's pretty days are numbered. And it's, so it's, I'm not surprised <laughs> you pick Instagram. It's just Instagram? Currently, it's just Instagram. We've, we've tried some forays into other medium with shockingly crappy results so we're That's sort of hilarious. just sticking to what we know right now so you're a golfer then yes i really enjoy the sport of golf okay golf's a good game i suck at it i stick to uh oh there we go good good spin there i stick to top golf which by the way they're building like a competitor in vineyard i saw that so it's like what is it it's called the golf club the golf club a good name. They need to come up with maybe a better name. Than I was that. hoping it was a top golf. I was like really. That's excited. what I thought too. I thought is this like, just yes. All, is this just a code word for a top golf? Yeah. No, no. And it's then not. I looked at it. I'm like, well, this sounds just like top golf, but <laughs> it's not. So we'll see how good it is. Well, it'll probably be cheaper. Uh, Android versus iOS. Which one you got and oh, why? I'm sorry, iOS. I've 
Don't be sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah. Should I, be. <laughs> I, when I say sorry, I just mean like I, this is not going to be an exciting question because uh, I, I used PCs for a long time. Uh, started buying MacBook Pros and actually running Windows on them when I was a consultant because all of my clients used Windows, so uh -huh. I needed to build for Windows stuff. Um, but I just love their hardware so much. And then once you get into their hardware, it's just over because everything is so compatible and the iPhone and the iPhone clearly being one of the best, you know, devices out there. Yeah. Ever made. So yeah, iOS all the and way. Nothing can pull you out. Uh, like Google built this amazing ecosystem. They bet. Come on over. All we need is your data. You know, I, de <laughs> <laughs> I, I never cheaper. say never. Uh, one of the things I'm really excited to see going back to the blockchain space is to see hardware manufacturers supporting blockchain technology out of the box. So th that's one of the things that changed the internet, right? Was when uh, computers and start shipping with modems and when, um, you know, Wi-Fi chips and the, the software that ran the OS that ran on there natively supported those things. I hope to see the same thing happen in blockchain space. So you could potentially see me with a blockchain enabled phone someday. It probably wouldn't be my primary device, at least for a long time. Uh, so 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 which company Apple or Google are going to be produce, more likely are going to produce the first blockchain enabled native that's phone? That's what I was going to ask. I think uh, this is a great question. I think it would be Apple before it would be Google because I You think, agree with that Brandon? Yeah, I agree. Cuz Google's like their their business is yeah. data whereas Apple it's still very much a hardware. Well, and, and Apple has shown themselves to be uh, resistant to, you know, sort of government meddling. Remember that whole FBI case where yep. the, the terrorist the guy, they phone. wanted the locked phone. Yep. Uh, Apple tries to put a lot of privacy, you know, friendly features on their phone. So it, I mean, it would surprise me. It wouldn't blow me away if Apple were to say, oh, and by the way, now um, our, you know, you can actually send Bitcoin very, very safely on the, on the iPhone now. That, I think that'd be awesome. Do you think that would pull a lot of Android users over? Because I feel like, just I, I could be wrong here. This could be stereotyping, but I imagine the people who are like free thinkers like that uh, are more attracted to the open source type phones. Like yeah, the, it's kind like of an interesting Venn diagram there, right? Where it's like the people in the blockchain, the free thinkers, maybe they're on Android, but then there might be a <laughs> like a overlap into Apple. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm because uh, I'm an Apple fanboy, and I'm always accused of being a sheep, you know. Uh huh. Uh, so I guess I'm not very free thinking. But then yeah. Brandon, who's like, well, you have there's I think woo! there's two Android users. There are like the people who are like are super techie and they're into like the customization and stuff like that. And is then that I, is I, that I, you? I, I I'm very much into that. But I think most of Android's market is just people. It's like it's it's a lower barrier mm. of entry. It's a cheaper way to get cheaper. a phone. I mean, you look at the world versus like America. It's pretty. It's very close. You look at the world. It's like eighty percent, might be ninety, like Android, just because. They, they produce cheaper phones. So I think a lot of those people still wouldn't care. Like I can send Bitcoin now. So Brandon's on a pixel three. Would you ever consider coming back to Apple? I would. Woo. Uh, but I like, I like the pixel. I like the Android. You like the night shade or whatever it's called. The, oh, night, uh, night mode. Yeah. Night mode. Called. Taking pictures in the dark. Google's pretty cool. You do so. a lot of that. Taking pictures in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> he has recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've seen some of my pictures, maybe on uh, Instagram. I take. Uh, I don't follow you on it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I take. I just follow him. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot it's a one-way thing. <laughs> one of these days, are we doing one more or no? No, nope, we're out All of right, time. We're good. Kalen, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Uh, I know, like, at least a hundred times more than I did about cryptocurrency and and blockchain stuff. 
uh, which isn't saying much. But hopefully what you know is right and not wrong. Hopefully I didn't uh, completely just spew out garbage. For yeah, the well, time. you're the only one that would know that at this point. So. <laughs> Do you know who Neil deGrasse, is that his name, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah, he's the, the scientist. He's the I listened to a guy. podcast where he was explaining the fourth dimension. He, he explains 2D. He explains the world of 3D. And then he explains 4D. And to him, it makes perfect sense. Well, fourth dimension is time. Once it hits that point, I'm just like, my brain hurts. And I feel like when I listen to like guys like Caleb talk about blockchain, it makes sense in his head. Like He can explain the fourth dimension theoretically. Dude, and I'm just like, dude, I listen, can't comprehend. J- just because there are probably a lot of people who are like you about the fourth dimension, the best example I've ever heard explaining the fourth dimension is dog fighting, right? So you have like World War II, you have two fighter jets in the, in the sky. One is shooting at the other to try and shoot him down. Well, he has to shoot ahead of where the plane is going to be so that the bullets get there at the same time as the plane, right? So that's the time. The time it takes the bullets to get from this plane to where this plane is going to be is the fourth dimension. That's interesting. If you want to get your mind blown, there's a YouTube video. I think it talks about visual. The title of it is something along the lines of visualizing the 10th or 12th dimension. I can't remember which one it is. Well, I think there are only 12 or something. Well, yeah, I think it's whatever the limit is, it goes to it. And I I lose it about after the fourth, fifth or sixth. And I'm just like, I have no idea what's happening anymore. Which I think they I think they know that. So they just say whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're 12. And in the ninth dimension, there are rabbits. Every, yeah, they just say whatever. <laughs> the example he used was Monsters, Inc. He said that's one of the most accurate depictions, like the doors. And you open the door and it suddenly opens up into the kid's bedroom. He said that, he's like, scientifically, that's actually a very accurate visualization of how the fourth dimension works. Hmm. Yeah, what does he know? But that's when I, my mind blew. And to him, it was like, this doesn't this make sense. And I was like, whoa, this guy's either a really good liar or he's really smart. Yeah. But, Anyway, just watch uh, Interstellar a few times to get it. Yeah, that's yeah. the closest I yeah. try to understand it. Well, uh, Kalen, thank you again for coming on the show. No problem. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a positive review on iTunes. Uh, if you would like to get in touch, our email address is inbound at belowthefold.io. Feel free to reach out with co- uh, questions or comments or make any suggestions on potential guests that you'd like to uh, see come on the show. And that's it. Until next week, we'll see you below the fold. See you next week.